I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. We'll be looking at the final chapter of this short but very powerful little book in between Obadiah and Micah, just 48 verses. It's an entirety. Also printed there for you in, in the bulletin. This is Jonah chapter 4 in its entirety. Let us give our careful attention, for this is the word of the Lord. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country, that this is why I made flee to Tarshish? For I knew you, you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out, to the, out of the city and sat east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what should become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Well, Jonah is a book that is very well studied in the church. If you've grown up in the church and you were a child in Sunday school, this is likely one of the books you looked at and learned very early on in your Sunday school curriculum. Kids are likely drawn to this book. It's for a number of reasons. It's it's not always that there's a book in the Bible where someone is swallowed up by a big fish, and so I think kids always love that aspect of the story. But also, probably this story has stuck with kids because of the Veggie Tales version of Jonah that's happened. And I know, I know, I'm sorry to the parents who now have exposed them, their kids to VeggieTales, and they have to ask what VeggieTales is and explain what that is. I apologize. But also for adults as well, this book has been studied very much as well. And even in recent years, there's been many books that have been put out on the book of Jonah. Tim Keller put out a very good book. And there's been plenty of other books for adults to study Jonah. And this is likely because this book hits adults where it hurts because it talks about such profound themes that confront us, such as mercy, judgment, grace, forgiveness. All these things really probe the deepest parts of our hearts. And we want to look at the final chapter of Jonah this Lord's Day, the climax of the story. We'll look at the arc of how this book unfolds in a second, but we want to concern ourselves with the final chapter, and we'll look at how that chapter unfolds in three points. We'll look at the requests that Jonah makes in the first part of the pericope, and then we'll look at God's response to Jonah's request, 
and then finally we'll end with the reflection. But before we get into the fourth chapter, we'll do just a brief recap of where we've been in the book of Jonah, or what's happened up to this point. We know it well, so we won't spend too much time. But we see that God, in the beginning, calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. And Nineveh is a great city in the nation of Assyria. And what we, what we learn later is that the Assyrians are the country that comes and sends the northern tribe of Israel into exile. And so Jonah is called to go to a great city that are enemies to the nation he loves and to preach the gospel, to preach the message of God's coming judgment to them. And so Jonah, who loves Israel, flees. He goes the exact opposite way that God calls him. And he goes to the sea. And this is one of many places that we see that God's sovereign over creation. He sends a great storm on the sea and it, make, it makes the travel difficulty. And the sailors start to panic they start to try to throw things overboard and what, they don't know what to do, what to stop this vicious storm from raging. So they cast lots and then finally, eventually Jonah is thrown overboard and he's swallowed up by a big fish. And then in chapter two, we have a beautiful prayer. It's, it's, it's beautifully poetic in a Hebraic sense and in so many ways. And then at the end of chapter two, after this beautiful Hebrew poetry, we get an equally beautiful image that the, the big fish vomits Jonah out onto the land. And then finally, we see that Jonah arrives at Nineveh, and he goes in and preaches a very half-hearted message, a very short message. He says a kind of turn-or-burn message, 40 days, and Nineveh will be overturned. And despite the, the shortness, the brevity, and perhaps lack of clarity in Jonah's message, we see that the Ninevites, they receive this message with great earnestness. And the king calls for fasting and mourning. And we see a great repentance amongst the land, even some of the animals as well. And so God sees that they turn from their ways and he relents his disaster upon them. And then we come to the climax of the book. We see Jonah's response to God relenting. So let's look at Jonah's request first. So we start off and we see the condition of Jonah's heart quite vividly throughout this entire chapter. And I think it's true that in one commentary it says that Jonah is the only prophet that we actually learn more about his character than what he actually prophesies. And the thing. So we see that he's just said his kind of one sentence in, verse, in chapter 3, but then in verse 4 we get a vivid insight to his character, who Jonah really is. And so we see that Jonah is displeased. It says in verse 1, it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And we see just if we look to the passage before, under the heading in a lot of your Bibles, it probably says that the people of Nineveh repent. So this is what Jonah's displeasure is in reference to. He's very upset that the Ninevites have chosen to repent and that God's going to relent his disaster, that they're not going to be destroyed. The word order here really stresses that this is not just kind of a mere annoyance. This is, Jonah is greatly peeved. This is like you haven't had anything to eat all day. It's 100 degrees outside and you're driving home and the AC breaks. And then you get a call from a family member who's notoriously difficult and they start complaining to you about all the things they don't like about you. This is everything peeves you to the point of annoyance. It's not a mere displeasure. It's a, he's greatly angry and displeased. And this gives us a vivid insight into the state of Jonah's heart. We see that he's very displeased with the fact that his enemies have turned. And then he goes in 
and said, this is what he prays to the Lord. And he says, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? So we see a couple things here. We see Jonah continues to be very high-handed with God. We see the distinction between the creator and the creature. And we see here that the creature talks back to the creator. Jonah is basically saying, this, I knew better than you, Lord. This is what I said would happen. I could have predicted this without coming. But notice what Jonah says in reference. He says, is this not what I said yet? In my country. Jonah, here again, this highlights Jonah's love for Israel, his love for the nation that he grew up in. And this points again to the fact that he does not want his enemies to receive mercy. That if God relents bringing disaster upon the Ninevites, it will only be bad news to Israel. So Jonah is increasingly upset about this. And then Jonah goes on and continues his prayer. And what is fascinating and perhaps scary to us is that Jonah uses God's own self-revelation of himself earlier in his word as an indictment against God as his own character. He confesses and says, I knew that you are a gracious God, that you are merciful, that you're slow to angry, that you're slow to anger, that you're abounding and steadfast love and covenant faithfulness, and that you relent from disaster. This is the very self-revelation that God gave to the Israelites just a couple chapters after the golden calf incident. And these are the very words that God reveals himself to Moses as, what type of God he is, that he's a God who fits all these glorious characteristics. All these things are good news for sinners, that God is abounding in steadfast love, that he is slow to anger. All these things are very good news to sinners. And so what we see with Jonah here is that he's susceptible to the problem that so many of us are as well, that he's having a memory problem, that Jonah forgets that he's been showing great mercy and kindness by the Lord as a sinner as well. But where Jonah's irritation is, is that his enemies are receiving mercy now. And so Jonah despairs, and he, we see it again, not only that Jonah's heart is hard, but that also he's despair, he's very despairing in this final chapter. And he says, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to live than to die. Here again, we see Jonah's character. He despairs of life itself and the prospect of his enemies receiving mercy, of his enemies being forgiven. This leads Jonah to despair of wanting, he does, he'd rather live, he'd rather not live in a world where his enemies receive mercy than to continue seeing the scene that has been revealed to him in front of him. I think one of the best examples from a popular book and movie is the way that this dynamic is contrasted between two characters in Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. We see Jean Valjean as one character whose life is characterized by grace and forgiveness and mercy. And then we see Javert, the strict law enforcer, whose life is characterized by a lack of mercy, a lack of forgiveness to all people. And so we see at the beginning of the story that Jean Valjean is formerly a criminal, and then he's released from prison, but he continues to commit crimes. And one day he's caught stealing uh, silverware and all these other things from a, a Catholic church and the police bring him back to the church and they say to the priest, they said he even had the audacity to say that you gave him all these things. 
And the priest says, it's true, I did give him all these things. But he's like, my friend, you left so early. And he continues to give him more and more things out of the church, extending grace and forgiveness to Jean Valjean, even though he deserves judgment. And this profoundly shapes Jean Valjean's character. And in the rest of the story, you see that his life is marked as one who's been forgiven, one who extends mercy. And this is in contrast to Javert, who knows no mercy, who has shown no mercy. And there's several run-ins with these characters where Jean Valjean at one point spares Javert's life and continues to extend mercy to Javert. And Javert, like Jonah, at the prospect of living in a world where there's mercy, despairs of life itself. And friends, while we can see the vividness of Jonah's hard-heartedness, the wrongness of his actions where his heart is, we also confess, if we're honest, that our hearts have been in this place as well, that all of us have been greatly annoyed at the prospect of our enemies receiving mercy. We do this very thing that Jonah does as well. Our hearts become very hard and callous. We scoff at headlines of famous athletes and actresses and actors who have done terrible things in their life, but allegedly they've come to Christ now. What we do, we create a standard of our own righteousness and condemn others who don't live up to our own standard that we've placed on them. And friends, this is a very isolating thing to do. This This is a very isolating way to live. It not only isolates us from our neighbor by living in such a condemning way that they're never enough, that we never have healthy relationships, but when we rely on our own righteousness, it also leaves an unending hole in our hearts as well, that we're never good enough, that we can truly never have peace with God. It's only when we, write, when we rest on the righteousness of another that we have true satisfaction, that we can stop striving and our own works and our own efforts, and we have true peace. So we see Jonah's response, or excuse me, his request, that he's very despaired and hard-hearted, but then we also see God's response to Jonah as well. So God has been listening to Jonah, and he comes, and he comes in very few words, and in a question, And in verse 4, he says, do you do well to be angry? We might think of echoes of the beginning part of Genesis, where we see where Adam and Eve, they sin in the garden, and God comes to them and he says, where are you? And we also see with Cain and Abel that after Cain kills his brother Abel, he asks Cain a similar question and says, where is your brother? So this is, he's asking a question here as well. And in these times, We know that God knows all things, and so it's not that God has a genuine curiosity to the the answer of the question, but he's really looking for repentance when God asks for questions. He's asking Jonah to look at his heart, to look inside, to look at his actions. Are you justified in being angry over your enemies receiving mercy? We don't get an exact response of what Jonah's words are, so we don't we don't know through words where his, what his response is, but we see clearly through his actions what his, what his response to God's question is. So we see in verse 5 that Jonah goes out of the city and he sets up east of the city and makes a booth for himself there. And so we have to ask, what is Jonah doing? He doesn't seem thrilled to be in Nineveh, so why does it look like he's attempting to build himself an Airbnb in Nineveh to extend his stay here? But we see at the end of verse 5 that Jonah makes this booth. He wants to be comfortable 
so he can have a front row seat to see what will happen to the city. This is kind of very subtle, but Jonah's response is he's not changed his heart at all. He's hoping that God changes his mind about his, his judgment on the Ninevites, that God will indeed rain down his wrath and judgment upon them. He's waiting to see what happens as a part of the city. So we see that there's really no change in Jonah's heart, that he's still viciously hoping for the judgment of his enemies as well. And so seeing that Jonah doesn't, has, not, has not turned his heart, hasn't quite got it yet, God is going to use an object lesson to really bring this about, to illustrate this for Jonah. And so we see in verse 5 the spiritual condition of Jonah, but then we're also given an insight into the physical condition of Jonah. And where Nineveh is, is in modern-day Mazul, Iraq. And I'm almost 98% sure I'm not pronouncing that right, but it's a, very, it's a very hot and arid and dry climate. And so Jonah is attempting to get any source of shade he is because where he is is just oppressively hot. There's an extensive heat that is coming upon him. And so to spare him from this, we see God's sovereignty in nature. He appoints a plant to come over to be a shade to protect Jonah from being burnt from the sun to save him from his discomfort. And here we see, in contrast to verse 1, where Jonah is exceedingly displeased that his enemies have received mercy, we see that he sees a new plant that's growing that gives him comfort, and he's exceedingly glad because of the plant. So here we see Jonah's priority. His own temporary physical comfort makes him exceedingly comforted, but those being spared from eternal judgment makes him eternally discomforted. So we see the contrast of what God is trying to bring about, that Jonah's concerned more for his temporary well-being than people's eternal well-being in the Ninevites. And so to continue his point of illustration, God, seeing that Jonah's glad with the plant, he appoints a worm to attack it. Again, we see God's sovereignty, the creator being sovereign over all things in creation with the whale, with the plant, and now with the worm attacking it. And so the plant withers away. Jonah loses a significant source of his shade and comfort. But to make matters worse for Jonah, God also not only takes away his source of shade, he also turns up the heat. And he, it says, when the sun arose, God appointed a scorching east wind that comes in. Now for those of us who live in Southern California, this, this idea is not too far removed from us. These were, they were called uh, hot east winds. And they would come off the mountains, they would come out east of the mountains in Iran, kind of you can think of that pretty picture. And they would come down, they were notoriously very dangerous. Anyone who lived in the area knew that they were incredibly dangerous and serious because they would bring heat, but the winds could also get up to 60 miles per hour. So you have these winds that are blowing things and destroying plants and houses and other things. But they're also, as they destroy your source of shade and comfort, they make everything increasingly hot in an already hot climate. And this is very similar to this, the phenomenon of the Santa Ana winds that we have in California. It's pretty much a very parallel thing that we experience here in this part of California. And so having taken away his shade and then also make it miserably hot for him, Jonah begins to feel the heat of the sun, and he becomes faint. And once again, he despairs of life itself and says, It is better for me to live 
than to die. And so again, we see that the first question, Jonah does not change his heart, and now God has demonstrated this object lesson for him with the plant in contrast to the people. And now the book, we come to the reflective portion where God really wants to drive home what he's trying to teach Jonah. And so having thought about and seen the response of Jonah to the plant and to the people, God comes again with another question gently and compassionately and asks Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And we would hope that at this point, that Jonah, having seen what God is trying to do, that he would soft, that he would ask the Lord to soften his heart, to give him eyes to see what the Lord's trying to teach him. But we don't see that. We see that Jonah actually doubles down, and he says, "Yes, I do well to angry, ang- be angry, angry enough to die." This is very much like a toddler or a, t- a three-year-old. If you've had those, where they double down on their actions. And kind of with their playing with their brothers and sisters, and you ask them the question, did you do well to hit your brother and your sister? And in their anger, they respond, yes, I do well. I did well to hit them. They deserved it. This is very much Jonah's response, too. And while it's childish, it gives us, again, an insight into the hardness of his own heart and the prospect of his enemies receiving mercy. And so now seeing that Jonah has responded this way, God uses his wisdom as a teacher to try to illustrate this point and give Jonah a lesson he'll never forget, contrasting his life with the plant. And so God says, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. God's saying, You did nothing for the plant. You didn't, you didn't plant the seed. You didn't water it. You didn't help it grow. You didn't nurture it. Jonah is the guy that shows up to a house move and ends up just standing around and doing nothing. Jonah has done nothing for this plant, and yet God confronts his heart and says, you had so much care, you had so much, you had so much care, you had so much comfort from the plant, you had such a desire for the plant to stay around. And so we see that Jonah, he recognizes Jonah's heart is more concerned with the plant than actual image bearers made in God's image. And God contrasts the lesser of the plant with the greater premise of the Ninevites. And God asks, and this book ends with a question. It's one of only two books in Scripture, the other being Nahum, that ends with a question. And God simply says, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand, and also much cattle. God is saying, the plant which was here in a day and gone tomorrow and has no eternal consequences, you pitied that, Jonah. But do I not have the right to pity these people who are headed to eternal damnation, who are headed to the eternal heat of Hades? 120,000 people might not strike us as a large number today. There might actually be more people in Temecula right now than this. But 120,000 is not probably an exact estimate of the city, but this, even at the time of Scripture, this would have been a huge city. So God's point here is to illustrate that there are a ton of people that live in this city. It's a very populous people. And all these people are lost in their sin and the hardness of their hearts. As he says, they do not know their right hand from their left hand. This is not that they're not culpable, 
for their sin. That would contrast other things in the book earlier. But this shows that these people are deeply lost in their sin, that they can't find their way out of darkness, that they have no hope of salvation to escape judgment. So God asked Jonah, is it not my right to be able to show mercy to these people so lost, so stuck in darkness in their own hardness of their hearts? Again, we mentioned that the book ends with a question. This is because we don't get Jonah's response once again. It's not like earlier in the chapter where we see through his actions what his response is. And so we don't get to see what Jonah's response is. We're not made privy to that. So the question comes to us today. We're confronted, just as Jonah is, with this same question. Are we okay with our enemies receiving mercy? This is the question we must ask ourselves. And friends, as we've seen Jonah's responses, the hardness of his heart, our response should be in humility. Yes, 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 Lord, you are sovereign over all things. You have every right to extend mercy to whom you'll extend mercy. We must watch our hearts, lest we forget that there was nothing in us that deserved God's mercy. This show is a very important, there's two takeaways, things we can touch on. In a redemptive historical sense, this gives us a very important shot into the future. And that God's going to extend mercy to nations outside of Israel. That here God's extending mercy to the Ninevites, that there will be one who comes and that he redeems those from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And the one who would come and extend mercy to all nations is the prophet greater than Jonah, Christ Jesus, the one whom Jonah points to. We see that Christ Jesus, in contrast to Jonah, was not angry about his enemies receiving mercy or angry about the spiritual condition of people's hearts, but that he wept for those who were lost. He wept for Jerusalem. He lamented for people who were stuck in their sin. Christ had a heart for sinners in contrast to Jonah. That Christ did not come for those who are righteous, that those who are better than their neighbors, for those who are strong. But Christ demonstrated his mercy in coming for his enemies, those who are weak and helpless sinners, those who are stuck in their own ways and headed in the straight path to eternal damnation. And we see the perfect mercy of Christ chiefly at the cross. We see that us as his enemies and sinners deserving of God's holy wrath and judgment, we see that Christ at the cross had our sins placed on him and bore the wrath of the Father in our place that we so justly deserve. In exchange, he gave us his righteousness, peace with our Father, and the gift of eternal life. We see that God spared us in his mercy from the judgment that we so justly deserved. And now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We see that Christ extended his mercy perfectly to us and also to his enemies as well. The very people who crucified them, Christ prayed to his Father and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We see the perfect mercy displayed in our Redeemer, Christ Jesus, who redeemed sinners from their sin, from the errors of their way. But friends, as we think in Scripture as well, we know that those who have been forgiven forgive others 
as well. We see that Christ calls us to say, just as your heavenly Father is merciful, so also be merciful as well. We can't sugarcoat things or play things down. We live in a broken and sin-cursed world. And as we think about forgiving not just our enemies, but forgiving our very friends and our family, this is a very weary and difficult and feels like an impossible task. Forgiveness is so difficult because we live in a broken world. And all of us, in small or big ways in this room, have been wronged, have been treated in a way that's not right. It can be as simple as having a rumor spread about you that was false, that ended up tarring your reputation amongst your friends and family. It can be being mocked. It can be a bad breakup that left you very bitter and hard-hearted. It can be your family members that wound you so deeply. It could be a parent or a child with a strained relationship. It can be lack of recognition in the family or in the classroom. And in so many other ways, friends, we've been wronged and hurt as a result of living in a broken world with other sinners. And forgiveness is such a difficult task. But friends, what we need to remind ourselves each and every day is we don't seek to forgive others from our own power, but we do it as those who have been forgiven much in Christ Jesus. It's never with our own efforts, but being reminded of the gospel, the grace that Christ showed to us, that we can be free to extend mercy, forgiveness to others as those who have been forgiven much. And as we struggle, we continue to struggle in our relationships to extend forgiveness. We don't do those. We don't do so as those who do it in vain, but we do it as those who entrust or who are entrusted and belong body and soul to the one who is perfectly merciful to all people, including his enemies the one who can bring healing to our broken hearts, the one who can lift those burdens of resentment off of our hearts, the one who can heal us from all things, the one who can remove bitterness from our lives. And it's to such a Savior that we rejoice that we've been forgiven much, and then also we look to him as our example as we seek to be those who are gracious and generous and merciful to our enemies and our neighbors and all those around us as we seek to imitate our perfect Savior. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are indeed all the things that Jonah confessed as you revealed in your word, that you are abounding in covenant love and faithfulness and that you are slow to anger, that you do not visit sinners in the midst of of immediacy and their shortcomings and their their fallenness. Lord, that you have loved us and shown mercy to us and your son, Christ Jesus, that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. And Lord, we're so thankful that you don't. And pray that you would uh, bear these things on our hearts and our minds this week, that you'd always remind us that it was not because of our righteousness that we've been forgiven, but because of your grace and your mercy to sinners that we've been forgiven. So I pray, Lord, that our lives would be marked by these virtues, that we'd be marked by as merciful and compassionate and kind people, that you would do that work in our hearts. We know that you must work for that to happen. And so, Lord, I pray that you would remind anyone here struggling today who has the burdens of, of bitterness or resentment towards whoever it might be, Lord, that you are, you've promised that you're gentle and lowly, that you're 
that your yoke is easy and your burden is light and that you can do the work in our hearts to bind up our hearts and our wounds. Lord, I pray that you would do this work. Thank you that you revealed yourself to us in your words. Thank you for your kindness to us and your son, Christ Jesus. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.